Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I want to thank and acknowledge all of our listeners this past week in Germany and in Denmark and in Italy. This is so exciting, as you know. I love hearing from you from all over the world. So be in touch at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com and let us know about your interest in the show. Today, we have Mike Rothschild. He is a journalist, a researcher, an expert witness, and debunker of conspiracy theories and fringe beliefs. Over the last decade, Mike has written extensively about politics, history, pop culture, and in particular, Mike is an expert on the QAnon conspiracy theory, tracing its evolution from a few 4chan posts to a massive worldwide movement that draws on centuries of conspiracy theories and scams to induct its believers into a violent mythology. Mike is the author of three books. His latest, which was released just yesterday, is called Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. The book debunks the myths of the Rothschild banking family, and he's also the author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything, and The World's Worst Conspiracies. Mike has also written hundreds of stories for The Daily Dot and other outlets. In addition to his work as an author, Mike has served as an expert witness in several legal cases related to conspiracy theories, has guest lectured at numerous colleges and conferences, and testified to Congress on the dangers of election-related disinformation. He has been interviewed by The New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, NPR, PBS, and hundreds of other news outlets and podcasts. You can find more info on Mike and his work at themikerothschild.com. It is a pleasure to have him on the show. Here's Mike now. It is my absolute pleasure to talk to Mike Rothschild today. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I have so many things to say, so many things to ask. And so I would love for you just to start and do an intro for yourself to orient the listeners to who you are and what you're up to. Sure. So my name is Mike Rothschild. I am a journalist and author focused on conspiracy theories, fringe beliefs, scams, hoaxes, essentially anything your uncle shares on Facebook without having read it first uh, is probably something I've written about or I'm taking a look at. And I have a book coming out uh, in September called Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Uh, Just to get it out of the way now, I am not related to the Rothschild family. If I were I would be on my yacht counting my paintings and I wouldn't uh, engage with any of this. I wrote a book about QAnon called The Storm is Upon Us, and I'm really happy to be here. 
So nice. I'm so happy to have you. Uh, yeah, I get asked a lot if I'm related to Leonard Bernstein. No idea. It's, it's the question. <laughs> and get ready for more of it with the with the movie coming out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, that's an uncle I, I would want. Yes. Um, but no, not no such luck. What I want to be able to talk about, among a lot of other things, is how and why things, movements, ideas devolve into anti-Semitism. And also to let you know that I gave out party favors at my Hanukkah party, which were Jewish space lasers that were for their cats. Fantastic. I love it. So um, it is really, really important. I mean, there's there's a humor to it. There's a ridiculousness to it. And there's a real danger to it. And also people who are bright get involved in this way of thinking. And and a lot of people will think that, you know, it has to do with not being on top of your game intellectually, et cetera. I, I wanted to tell a, a brief story and then I want to hear from you a lot. Um, I was in the midst of trying to do an intervention for a family and the mother and father didn't get along. She said her her ex, you know, was someone who got involved in a lot of different kind of thinking that was alarming to her. And the daughter had gotten caught up with a psychic healer who was draining her of her resources and everything else and making her believe that um, she had some sort of disease that only the psychic could cure her of it. By extracting money from her, she'd be purifying her, all, whatever, on and on and on, uh, justification for taking advantage. So the father, who's an attorney, actually a partner at his firm, comes in with a suit and a briefcase. He's all prepared for this planning for the intervention and talking about how his daughter is so caught up in different ways of thinking. During a break, uh, and I'm doing the intervention with two friends of mine, two colleagues, he says, can I ask, can I, can I talk to you for a minute? says, I brought some books I want to show you. And I thought they were going to be about, you know, uh, fake healers and grifters and, the, you know, learning about what his daughter has dealt with. And it outcomes the Elders of Zion book. Yep. Yeah. Et cetera. You can only picture, right? The pile of books. Yep. And he says to me, I really want to understand why the Jews started the Holocaust. Mm. And why the Jews started the slave trade from Africa. Why do you even think that's a possibility? And here he was in his suit, partner at his firm, very convinced. I was at a loss. I was not expecting this. My two colleagues <laughs> swooped in. <laughs> like, Let's give Rachel a break. She probably deals with this a lot. And it was fascinating to me. What, where is the breakdown in just, you know, critical thinking? and how people can become so convinced of this. So I would love for you to explain it all to us and answer all of our questions today. Thank you very much. Wow. Okay. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, first of all, I mean, yes, there are a number of people who believe that the Jews are essentially responsible for their own misery. I, you know, I write about it quite a bit in, in Jewish Space Lasers, this idea that the Rothschilds were secretly funding the Nazis, that Hitler was a Rothschild, um, that the you know other Jews should hate the Rothschilds more than anyone because they sat out the war in their luxury Paris hotels. That is not an uncommon belief. And where it really stems from is not a not a lack of education. I mean, as you were saying, you know, these are these are really accomplished people. You you don't get to be a partner in a law firm by being an idiot. I mean, you have to be sort of good at studying things and good at writing and good at understanding. Where it comes from is a need to feel like you know more than everybody else. 
And so much of conspiracy theory belief, so much of the belief in myths like the Rothschilds run the world or QAnon is real, it stems from the desire for secret knowledge, to know what's really going on with, you know, really in quotes, uh, know who's responsible for it, know what they aren't telling you, and to, to really sort of put yourself in a higher plane than other people. And to be able to say, well, I told you so when the crackdown comes, when the great purge comes, when all of these, you know, apocalyptic events happen. So it really stems from a need for somebody to blame and a feeling that you are special and better than everybody else. Right. And I wonder, and this is not to group an entire group of people in the same sort of way, but I wonder how much insecurity and anxiety are tied in with the motivators here, the insecurity about how you might be seen if you don't have the answer. Um, like, I think people are trying so hard to show themselves being superior in some way. I wonder psychologically why they're trying so hard, um, why they can't just walk into a room and just be. But also, I wonder if there's an anxiety woven into it that unless we have the secret answer, then something bad will happen to us or or to the world. What do you think? I think a lot of it stems from from insecurity and anxiety. And I think it's a lot of what drives, you know, arguing online. You know, why, why do we feel the need to argue with people on Twitter or Facebook? People we don't know, people we don't respect, people we don't even like. Like, wh why are we trying to change their minds? They're not going to change our minds. But I think we are so afraid of being wrong and of admitting that we were wrong. And, you know, that's a lot of a lot of what keeps people in cultic movements. And you know that. It's not that you believe that the UFO is going to come or the flood's going to come. It's that you told everybody that the UFO was going to come. And if you go back and say, well, I was wrong, the UFO is not going to come and I was an idiot, that is hard to do. That's really hard for anybody to do about anything. If you think about a, an argument with your spouse, Nobody wants to be wrong. Nobody wants to look like a fool. So we get sucked into these things that make us feel like we're smarter than everybody else. And then we have to stay there because we declare, well, we're smarter than everybody else. We know what's going on. So it's it's anxiety. It's the not wanting to look foolish. And in, and at some point, it's just the sunk costs of having been part of something for so long that you can't go back. Right. Yes, I do. I do think that does play a huge role, the sunk cost uh, and, and also this notion that you've said something out loud, you know, at Thanksgiving or wherever, and you need to back it up and you need to stick with it. Or what will that mean? How will that look for you? I mean, what people don't realize, I think, in those moments is that it is a show of confidence and bravery and strength to be able to say, oh, I was totally wrong about that. <laughs> I thought I was sure really sure you could hear it in my voice. I was belligerent, which is what happens a lot in these cases, like, you know, with the counseling cases having to do with this kind of thinking, there's a, a pushiness and aggression that is different than other cases. But yeah, for someone to be able to say, that was based on information that I was sure was true. Now I have other information, uh, just like a good scientist. I have other information and I've been able to shift how I feel about it. That usually garners more respect, but I think people are worried um, about having to save face. I wonder too, then, if you can talk to us about why things that seem unrelated to mm, anti-Semitism or racism or whatever suddenly devolve into that, like the flat earther movement. So it, it's about, you know, 
geography, I guess, and astronomy-ish, light-ish, adjacent. So why, why, why suddenly is it about the, is it the Jews' fault? Sure. Well, and it's really helpful to understand that a lot of these movements are really not about ideology. You know, you find this a lot, uh, especially with uh, Gen Z people who are getting into extremism. They'll jump back and forth between neo-Nazi groups and jihadist groups because it's not about the belief. You know, it's not about I have the evidence that the earth is flat. It goes back to that. I know what they don't want me to know. And the they usually becomes the uh, secret string pullers of the world who are usually Jews. So it, it's it's that there is someone in control, a group of experts, a group of doctors, a group of bankers, group of media figures who are keeping the truth from you. And that almost always gets wrapped up with Jewish overrepresentation in banking, in media, in academia. So it becomes almost a reflex to go after this very small outgroup of people who have done very well for themselves historically. It's very easy to blame that group for whatever's gone wrong because so many people have done it already. And in, and by extension, it becomes much easier to blame people of color for you not getting whatever it is that you wanted because, oh, we're now making an effort to elevate them as if everything is some zero-sum game and there is an, only a very finite amount of success or money or whatever. And if somebody else gets it who, you know, quote, doesn't deserve it, then I won't get it. And it becomes very selfish and very, you know, self-centered and, and very kind of putting yourself at the center of the universe. Right. Like the immigrants are stealing our jobs, the jobs that we wouldn't want. Right. The jobs that I would never take, uh, but they're being stolen. Right. Exactly. And thank you to all the immigrants who do th the work. Absolutely. And so I think that's very interesting that there is this pie and it is finite in some people's eyes rather than seeing this as and it's still that you have opportunity that you can still do something in your life that that an opportunity hasn't been stolen from you that just feels to me like shifting blame like um kind of a displacement not really wanting to take responsibility for the fact that you could be working and could be whatever supporting your life or your family and you're and you're not it's also true that there are some people who have been treated very unfairly or have been let go and shouldn't have been and and they're going to have a grudge, and rightfully so. But still, it's not the usual suspect's fault, um, but it's who fired them or who's mismanaging the company or whatever else. But yeah, I guess it is. It's like having kind of a bully culture, you know, which is an interesting thing. Although part of the reason I do this work is this idea in my family that you can't let the bullies win. But I do think that there is this sort of picking on the little guy that is all too convenient. Right. And that that is a very historical phenomenon. If you look at the persecution of Jews going all the way back to the Middle Ages, this was a very small minority, but they had their own customs. They had their own language. They kept their money kind of in their own uh, groups and, you know, among their co-religionists. And it's very easy to look at those people with suspicion and with distrust and then decide that they're doing terrible things. If something bad happens and you can't explain it and you've got this group of people who kind of keep to themselves and, and have different haircuts and speak a language we don't understand, it's easy to say, well, they did it to us. And so much of the you know historical persecution of Jews really just comes down to needing a scapegoat, needing somebody to blame for this thing that happened that we either can't explain 
or the explanation is our own failure and we don't want to confront that. So we're going to go after these people because they don't have the power to fight back. Right. Okay. You know, there is this idea too that I remember learning about. Uh, Eric Fromm talks about common customs and beliefs, no matter how absurd, bring people together and save them from isolation. And I wonder about the isolation that people are trying to pierce by getting involved in a movement. And that's what I think you were alluding to kind of by saying the ideology sometimes doesn't matter. I think it's having the answer, but I wonder if it's also a feeling of connectedness. Absolutely. And for a long time, most of the existence of modern conspiracy culture, it was very isolated. You, You had to know where to get the materials. You know, you had to know where the weird bookstore was. You had to go to the gun show to get the new anti-Clinton VHS tape. It was a very uh, isolated and very lonely existence, usually with just a couple other people who would kind of, you know, congregate in the same places. Now, with social media, people from around the world who believe the Kennedy assassination was a conspiracy, who believe the the Jews own all the central banks. Those people are able to find each other and create their own communities without ever having to leave their house. They can share the materials with each other. They can create their own materials. They can spread them around very easily with very little effort or cost. So something like the internet, something like social media brings these people together and gives these people a sense of community. And of course, we saw in the biggest isolating event of the last century, which was the pandemic. People were uh, suddenly home. They were, a lot of them were alone. They lost their jobs. They were bored. They were scared. They had too much time on their hands and they were looking for somebody to blame for who did this to them. And you saw people from very disparate communities, everybody from the far right to traditionally far left uh, wellness and holistic health groups coming together to find common cause in who actually did this to us and what do they want from us? What are they trying to gain from these lockdowns? So the isolation, the suspicion that all came together in a very rapid fashion, buoyed by these social media companies who had no real idea how to handle any of what was going on. Right. I think, you know, when something is unprecedented, or at least during your time, your lifetime or adult life, then right, you you don't know, I think, how to manage it in a way that it really needed to be managed. It's hard to have predictors that are accurate. And at the same time, yeah, I mean, I feel for so many people who were so isolated. And I'm sure now with having a lot of these groups that can reach out online, that there is something really unique about the reach they have and probably the intimacy too that they can be with you during your sleepless night, you know, on your computer when no one else is there. I wonder if that plays a part too. It definitely does. These groups become kind of your real family. And you see a lot of this in the communications of a lot of these conspiracy theorists, the, you know, the message boards that they'll go on. If you read, if you really dig into these posts, they're miserable. They're people who have stopped watching TV, people who've stopped listening to music, who have stopped following sports, because all they see is the control of the deep state and, and they all they see is the satanic symbols. And then they're 
they're sort of, they come together with these groups of people who are going through the same thing, who are all commiserating about how I can't listen to this band anymore. I used to love this football team, but all I see is the, is the pedophilia. I mean, never mind that most of it doesn't exist. What they, they find common cause in is the shared misery. Whereas in their, you know, real life, particularly before the pandemic, they would have people who would who would say, hey, you want to come out to the game with me? Hey, you want to go to the movie with me? They would you pull you out of the isolation. But with the pandemic, all you had was isolation. And a lot of these people who were retired, maybe their kids had left the house, maybe they were divorced. They just had no one. And lone, that kind of loneliness is really anathema to how we have evolved. We've really evolved to embrace communities, to embrace our villages. If you don't have it, you're going to go looking for it and you might go looking for it in the wrong place. Mm, oh, that's exactly right. Wow, I see that every day, actually, in my practice. And going back to this idea of the ideology, the philosophy, sometimes the theology, that it matters, but it doesn't. Um, and I think cult leaders know that and that's why they change it a lot. You know, the a lot of the sacred texts are different from Monday to Tuesday um, and it doesn't matter. Uh, it should but it it doesn't. And so, yeah, I think, you know, when we talk just about the human condition, we understand about what the appeal is. The thing that that I find so ironic among a lot of other things is that often these groups are the ones creating the problem that they say other people are creating, like the storm. I feel like these groups, they they kick up such dirt that they're creating the storm with their vitriol and, you know, division. And, but meanwhile, they're warning people against the storm. I'm thinking, that what? That's right in front of me right now with these people who are screaming in my face. And so I wonder if there's other there are other moments where, you know, you've seen this kind of, well, irony, that the, the things that they say exist in the world don't necessarily, but they exist within the group that's supposed to be protecting them. Right. They've created an alternate reality. And you find that particularly with QAnon. There, there is a, a layer of decoding, of trying to figure out what all of this stuff means, especially when you think about the Q drops, you know, how to how to interpret these these codes and these ciphers and these out-of-context pictures. And you feel like you are being told a story that no one else is talking about. You know, that that the things that are happening in our media and our politics, they're not just random occurrences. They're not driven by personal grievances or greed. They're part of a, of a vast secret war between good and evil. And you feel powerful as part of that. You feel like you're fighting on the side of the good guys. And after, you know, millennia of the common man getting, you know, kicked in the teeth by the rich elites uh, yeah, who get to do whatever they want, now suddenly you get to fight back. And I think a lot of what a movement like QAnon really embraces, it's certainly the, the grievance and the division, but it's also a lot of busy work. It's a lot of like, watch this 10-hour video make memes, uh, decode what Q is telling you, or decode President Trump's hand gestures. It doesn't mean anything, but it gives you something to do. It gives you something to fill your time. And I think, again, going back to the pandemic, there was this need for filling the days. You know, we have nothing to do. We are not working. We have no one around. A lot of people started podcasts or 
uh, learned how to bake or binge watched a show. But if that brings you nothing but misery, you are going to congregate to something that makes you feel powerful and like you're fighting back against the people who put you in lockdown rather than saying, well, I'm going to make the best of it because you, you go, it goes back to that need to feel special. Right. Okay. And this whole idea of, of keeping people busy. So because of the population I work with most often, they come out of these situations exhausted. They haven't moved forward in their life at all, but they've been busy nonstop. And so they had to kind of take stock and wonder they really what they were doing was being kept busy. So they had this sense that they were doing something that was important. They had deadlines. They had to do it perfectly. Everyone was watching what they're doing. They had to check in with the other people in the group to report about what they were doing. Um, I mean, actually, if you talk to a Scientologist and you mention um, Thursday at two, they will usually have um, like the hair will stand up and the, the, that's a deadline time when everything has to be in and all your paperwork, your stats, they call it, you, you know, keeping your stats up. And so, but for what? I mean, you're not furthering your career. You're not helping your family. You're not supporting anyone. You're not making any money. You're not doing anything. You're just sort of keeping the machine well-oiled, I guess, um, but that you have this sense that you're busy I remember there was a politician years ago, Lyndon LaRouche. Oh, sure. And I remember talking to some of his former followers who said that it was their job to stay up all night to perfectly sharpen the pencils. And so, but they felt it was important and they knew that all the pencils were going to be looked at the next day and evaluated and they were going to have to resharpen ones that weren't just right. And for what? And so, but I think you're right. People want to feel productive. Yeah, and there's a reason why the LaRouche movement was called a cult, because it was a cult. I mean, it did all the same things. Uh, yeah, I write quite a bit about uh, LaRouche and his uh, his obsession with the Rothschilds in the book, you know, connecting them to, you know, the British royal family's opium trade and all this other nonsense. And what you find with LaRouche is there was a gigantic amount of material that the LaRouche community produced. I mean, you get newsletters, you had magazines, you had books, you had videos, just a constant stream of stuff coming out, you know, all saying the same stuff, but it, it was a constant creation of product. And I, I wonder how much of that falls into that sort of busy work umbrella of just, well, we got to get out, you know, issues of our nine magazines this month because, you know, we need something to do. We need to keep people happy and keep them from thinking about how terrible their lives are. Right. Oh, that's true too. Right. It's a great distraction. Um, great, not in healthy or lovely in that way, but just huge. So I, of course, there's so much else I want to ask you about and Alex Jones and all those fun people. Um, but I have a, I have two questions for you. One is what has driven your interest in this? And also if you feel comfortable talking about this, because I get this, I get asked this a lot, why it is that it doesn't matter how much Trump and other people do that's illegal or wrong, that still people trust him and feel that what he's saying is the truth. And so what gives certain people a pass and why others are held up to a certain standard that is much higher? Because I think if some other politicians did even one of the things that he did, that would that would be the end of their career. Um, but for some people, it doesn't matter. Similar to a cult leader, that they can get away with anything. Sure. Um, and I'll, I'll tackle the first question first. My own personal interest in this material, you know, where I 
grew up. I didn't know any, you know, JFK truthers. I didn't know any people who went to psychics. It was, that was totally outside of my existence. It was just not even something that anybody talked about. You know, you know, I remember one woman who would, um, like get a Hungarian refugee who would get drunk and scream at my mom that she was like a princess who was controlling the world. But it was like, that was the domain of mentally ill people or people with a lot of trauma. And in college, I started to listen to the old Art Bell Coast to Coast AM show. That was a late night radio show where they would talk about UFOs and crop circles and psychics and, you know, alien abductions and all that stuff. And it was, um, it was after the, uh, like the Oklahoma City bombing where that movement very quickly pivoted from hardcore anti-government extremism to much more generalized conspiracy theory mongering because I think they realized oh, we, what we say has a lot of impact on people, so maybe we should stop talking about how we need to kill the FBI agents. And I and I remember listening to all these stories, and I didn't, you know, I never believed any of them, but I was fascinated by them as stories, as sort of, why does somebody believe this? What is it about this particular thing, you know, uh, crystal healing or, you know, the afterlife or, or whatever it is that pushes most people away but attracts some people. And that always really stuck with me. And I, you know, I moved out to Los Angeles and I was working as a screenwriter and it wasn't the most fulfilling thing. And I started to write for the blog of a skeptical podcast that I was a big fan of. And this was kind of that point where conspiracy theories and fringe stuff was starting to get into the mainstream. And of course, a couple of years later, down the escalator comes Donald Trump, who rose to political power through pushing conspiracy theories about where Barack Obama was born and do vaccines cause autism. And here was the almost instant mainstreaming of everything that had been way too weird for most people to talk about. And I started writing more about it. And, um, and of course, then I discovered QAnon. And I, you know, QAnon was one of those things where I was trying to get people to pay attention to it. I said, look, this is really dangerous. There's a lot of really violent rhetoric here. I noticed that it's kind of placement of a of an all-knowing guru who had the secret answers about the great event that was about to happen was very similar to some currency scams I'd written about where there was the same kind of thing. There was a guru, there was going to be a great uh, financial reset, and the people who'd bought the Iraqi dinars or the people who'd prayed hard enough to get the prosperity packets would become instant millionaires. And QAnon had all those hallmarks, but the great event was not becoming rich, but the good feelings that you had when you watched Hillary Clinton and George Soros executed at Guantanamo Bay. And I thought there was a real potential for violence here. And I tried to convince people to take this seriously. And what I got was, oh, don't pay attention to it. Don't give these people oxygen. Just ignore it. It'll go away. And it did not go away. And you know, I really realized that there was a need for this to be covered in a way that leans into how bizarre it is, but also understands how dangerous it is. Uh, so that that's really what's spurred my work in the last couple of years. You know, it started with just this personal interest, and then it really evolved into this stuff is now everywhere. And everybody seems to know somebody who believes that the election was stolen, who believes that the vaccine will give you a heart attack. And this is not the domain of the fringe anymore. This is as mainstream as it gets. And there is a right way to talk about it and a wrong way to talk about it. And a lot of people talk about it in the wrong way. And I wanted to talk about it the right way.
that was a lot. Sorry. No, no, it's just beautiful. And I'm curious before I respond, what is the wrong way to talk about it? That's a great question. There's always that dance with these kinds of things between platforming something and covering something. You know, how we talk about it matters as much as whether or not we are talking about it. So the the wrong way is unthinkingly printing big sections of a mass shooter's manifesto and trying to analyze it and trying to figure out what did this guy really mean? What 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 are the clues here? Chances are he didn't mean anything. He's trying to waste your time. He's trying to get his manifesto printed. The wrong way is hey, you'll never believe what stupid thing QAnon believers think this week. You know, the wrong way is thinking that all these people are stupid and crazy and totally lost or are all racists and all anti-Semites and are just bigots who need to be completely written off. Now, some of them are, but it's much, much more complicated than that. There are very real psychological reasons why something like QAnon, why something like the Rothschilds and George Soros control the world, why that appeals to people. And just writing them off as as idiots or trying to debate and debunk somebody else's beliefs out of them, all of that is wrong. And all of that just does nothing but push the person deeper into the belief. So there is definitely a humane way to talk about this, and there is a salacious way to talk about this. Right. I mean, I I think that it is good to reach in and connect with the person who's talking to try to understand what is behind the belief or the need to believe in this way or the need to put together the cue drops like they're some sort of, you know, conspiratorial Dead Sea Scrolls, you know. And so it's reminding me of a person who I interviewed who helped start this Reddit group for people who had you know, been affected by QAnon, which it became sort of suddenly had 200,000 people. The QAnon casualties group? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm very familiar with it. I'm sure you are. And he then had to give it over to someone else to help to moderate or monitor or whatever, because it was became too big and unwieldy. But when you're talking about the violence, one of the things that helped him leave And the reason that he got in wasn't even so much that he was aware politically of different things. It was a way for him to connect with his father. And so it was very personal. But then it grew and he then became part of the movement and very involved in the movement. And then he is from New Zealand. He found himself in New York and Times Square chanting with other people that they wanted to hang Hillary in the middle of Times Square and they were going to build this sort of platform to hang her on. And he caught his reflection in one of the many high-rises in Manhattan around Times Square, caught his reflection chanting for her death and to be hanged in Times Square. And he thought, I don't recognize that person. And that was an alarming thing for him to have that insight that he had suddenly become this militant person who was chanting for someone's death. And all he wanted was he said it to have tea at night with his father and to have some way to connect. And it went all the way there because it connects with something inside. And, you know, it is, it is so powerful, I think, for people to see what, what they can be susceptible to that we all can be 
you know, at varying times. And it isn't a mark against you necessarily. I almost feel like it's a, speaking about the storm, and maybe you can talk about this. I feel like it's a perfect storm, the the need and the timing and, you know, or feeling like you don't have a place in this world or whatever else. It all comes together and it makes it kind of a perfect fit for people. Yeah, I I have heard many stories, including the story of the person who you're talking about, who I know, where they were not a Trump guy. They were not a right winger. They were not, you know, they were not an anti-Hillary person. They just found something because they were looking for an answer. They were looking for why are things the way they are? Why do certain people seem to get everything they want and certain people don't get anything they want? There is a very popular QAnon video that's called The Plan to Save the World. And one of the first lines in that video is something like, do you ever wonder why you can't get ahead? Well, that's everybody at some point. Everybody wonders why they can't get ahead at some point. So everybody's going to go, yeah, I do wonder about that sometimes. It's it's not about, it doesn't start with, hey, let's go kill Hillary. It starts with a very personal thing. And you know, I know you were talking a little bit about Scientology. Scientology doesn't hook you with the guy running at you and yelling about Xenu. It hooks you with, hey, you want a stress test? And you go, oh yeah, that sounds that sounds good. I've been really stressed lately. And it's it's just that very simple thing. It's not the complicated thing. That's where you wake up and you go, I don't know who this person is. I don't know how I got here and who I am. So it, it everybody is susceptible to all of this because we all have something that didn't go right in our life. We all have something that bothers us, some question that never got answered. And if the right piece of material hits you at the right time in the right way, especially if you are dealing with a very personal trauma, whether it's uh, the election didn't go your way or you just got a big medical bill that you can't pay and the right thing hits you, you're going to go, oh, that's why, that's what's going on. And then you start going further and further down the rabbit hole and you find yourself watching like Holocaust denial videos at four in the morning and then storming the Capitol. Right. Uh, an antidote. Well, to this, I mean, I really wonder, I wonder what it's going to take. And I, I feel like, you know, that's also something for us to talk about, but what, what will help people move away from this? But I do think the fact that it's personal makes it so intoxicating for people, but also just, it fills a need. And I want society to be able to fulfill and fill that need. I want families to fill that need. I'm remembering a, a, a woman who talked to me about getting involved in ISIS, she had been in foster home after foster home. Part of the reason she even considered being open to killing herself for a cause that she originally knew nothing about was because they remembered her birthday. And it was the first time she had been with a group of people who sent her a message on her birthday wishing her a happy birthday. Yeah, the love bombing. I mean, that's that's a real thing. And it it makes you feel like someone cares about you. and. Most of us live in a world where we get deluged with like happy birthday messages on Facebook, you know, or my, my dentist sends me an email <laughs> saying happy birthday. <laughs> but if no one's ever done that for you, oh my God, the power of that is enormous. And the people who run these movements and the people who profit off these movements, they understand how that works perfectly. And going back to your second question a while ago about Trump, Donald Trump makes you feel like he is fighting for you. He says this all the time. They're not after me, they're after you and I got in the way. Well, 
Donald Trump would would throw you a cinder block if you were drowning. He doesn't care. He's never cared. He's never going to care. But he makes you feel like he cares. He makes you feel like, finally, I've got somebody on my side. That's why he gets a pass. That's why the Access Hollywood tape didn't drive him out of the race. Now, that had a lot of other factors going for it. That was also quite a bit about Hillary Clinton, about the 30-year campaign by the far right to destroy her, to demonize her. And it was like, well, you know, we don't like Trump, but anything's better than Hillary. And then pretty soon you've talked yourself into, sure, it's fine that they indicted him again. You know, they, he, there's nothing. They, he didn't do anything wrong. So you talk yourself into a deeper belief that starts just with, well, this guy's the best option we've got. And I, and I think for a lot of his diehard fans, they are so wrapped up in, in him, in his cult of personality where they will dress like him. They will make the same typos that he makes in his tweets because finally somebody is is on their side. Finally, somebody is fighting for them. Never mind that he's not. They think that he is and they want him to be. So it it, it gets into that sort of cult leader, love bombing dynamic because these are people who feel like every other institution, every other politician is out to get them. Finally, Trump is out to get those people. Wow. Yes. Yes. And I... I have often wondered about, you know, do they not see what he's doing or do they not care? Because I think, you know, with with cultic groups, et cetera, I think of this quote by Dr. Margaret Singer, who studied POWs and other thing, other kind of groups of people whose minds are toyed with. She was a professor at Berkeley. And she said that when you get into, as I call them, systems of control, you learn to deny the evidence of your senses. Taking this to the next step is they're not denying the evidence of their senses. It just doesn't matter. And I feel like that's a whole other level of danger. Yeah, a lot of Trumpism it has been, and he said this at one point, he said something like, what you're seeing and hearing is not happening. It's like, what? Then, well, then what is happening? And what is happening is what he's telling you. And I, I cannot imagine a more exhausting way to live, feeling like everything that is happening is a lie and only this guy can tell me the truth. And that's why a lot of these people are so unhappy and why they're so adversarial is because you you feel like everybody's out to get you. Everybody's lying. And, you know, one of the things that brought all these people together during the pandemic wasn't political ideology. It wasn't any kind of scientific knowledge. It was finally, someone's telling me the truth, that all the experts are lying, all the media is lying, all the pharma companies are lying. And of, of course, people come at me with, oh, so you think they're all telling the truth and the pharma companies and the banks are, are on your side? That's not what I said and that's not what I think. But there is a big difference between, you know, pharmaceutical companies do not always have the patient's best interest in mind and everyone's lying to me all the time. One of those things is kind of a manageable way to live and the other one is not. Right. And I think about the dependency too then, right? If he's the one who's going to tell you the truth and you can't trust anything else that you're seeing or hearing, then you are dependent on him as a conduit to the truth, to keeping yourself safe, to knowing what's going on. And I'm sure the the narcissist in him loves that he is at the pinnacle of this pyramid of truth and no one is above him. Yeah. 
when Trump declared that uh, I'm the only one who can fix it, like a hundred years of Republican history just like shriveled up. The idea that the president is the person that we have to rely on for every single thing in our lives is so opposite the way GOP politics have functioned, you know, since after the Second World War. But it was like they just tossed it all in a minute because here was a guy who hated all the same people that I hate and doesn't like Hillary Clinton. And it's like, that's all it took. Right. Okay. So now to to get into how this has been for you, and also um, I'm I'm curious about the trends as you see them and where you see this is going, because I, I would love you to polish your crystal ball at the end and let us know, you know, but I'm curious about the harassment that you've had to deal with, if you can talk about that, because it's unfortunately part and parcel with this, you know, it it seems to trigger people to come after other people. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's another one of those things that's really happened uh, with social media. We've kind of embraced the idea that screaming at strangers and calling, uh, you know, TV pundits pedophiles is like a acceptable way to live. Um, you know, certainly I've gotten my share of it. It does kind of ebb and flow depending on kind of what I'm working on or if I'm in the media for something. You know, this this thing happened in uh, in July when the Sound of Freedom movie came out. I went on CNN and I talked about how the guy behind it has kind of exaggerated his background and a lot of the statistics they cite are not actually accurate and how a lot of this is being driven by QAnon influencers and the lead actor is a big QAnon in- influencer. And I got lit up for two weeks by every right-wing media outlet, every right-wing pundit. I was getting talked about on Fox News. I was getting uh, ranted about by Alex Jones. Uh, Of course, this was right around the time where my mom passed away. So um, this, this, you know, I've told this story before, but I'm, you know, in the hospital and we're sort of talking about these end-of-life decisions that we're going to have to make for my mom. And somebody direct messages me and says, Alice Jones just spent an hour ranting about you. It's weird. It's it's definitely surreal. And the best that I can do is kind of put it in its proper place, not attempt to argue with any of these people ever. I don't find any kind of public pushback against the insanity it helps at all. In fact, I think it actually makes it much worse. You know, try to uh, keep myself as safe as possible and try to just not obsess about it. Because that's what they really want. They want you to feel unsafe. They want you to obsess about it, argue about it, waste your time on it. And, you know, eventually it always dies down. And and this took a little bit longer this time, but it did die down. And, and you know, it's kind of gotten to its normal sort of low ebb. Uh, Alex Jones hasn't talked about me in a while. You know, maybe, maybe we need to change that. I don't know. But it, it's just kind of part of the job. And it's unfortunate that it is, but it really is. And and I think you really just need to let it go as much as possible, not take it personally, not try to fight back against every, you know, freshly created Twitter account with a bunch of numbers in its name, because they want you to waste your time and get angry. That's how they win. I think you're right. That is how they win. And I am I am so sorry to hear about your loss. And how how hard it is and at a young age to also be dealing with that but i think and i think it puts everything in perspective right it keeps things the the things that are really important are the things that you just need to focus on and everything else is just 
you know, like kids throwing sand on each other in the playground. And it feels just like you want to stay elevated. You want to have the important conversations, the end of life conversations, the the things that are important. Yeah. And I think that it does become hard and it's good that you have support around you. And I think sometimes you need that and you need to lean on that. But sometimes this can bring out the worst in people or just bring out the worst people. Sure. It definitely brought out the worst people. (laughs) uh, Just like, who are they? Where did they, what rock did they crawl out from under? Yeah, no, it's really it's a terrible thing. So I'm I'm wondering about the trends that that you can educate us about that we might not know about and where you think this is going. And then I'd love to talk about your books. Sure. You know, it's very hard to prognosticate in this world because things happen so quickly and you kind of never know what's going to catch fire. You know, you could spend a lot of time digging through right-wing message boards and then suddenly, you know, some guy comes along with a new country song um, that alludes to Jeffrey Epstein and welfare cheats. And it's like, oh, that's all we're going to be talking about for two weeks. So the the for me, the best thing that I can do is not try to predict what's going to happen, is to just sort of monitor these spaces, see what they're talking about, what's bubbling up to the top. I wrote a piece in in August about the fears of a new lockdown. And this just came out of nowhere. Uh, It actually started with Alex Jones. He starts ranting that some TSA whistleblower was telling him that we're going to have new mask mandates and we're all going to be on a China-style lockdown by the end of October. Well, this is everywhere in the far-right ecosystem. So you can't really predict what these people are going to do. I think you just need to monitor and say, okay, what are they talking about? Why are they talking about it? Where are they getting the information from? And maybe the biggest question, who is making money off it? And if you follow who is monetizing these claims, it almost always comes back to some influencer with a big podcast or a big Twitter account who is profiting off of putting out as much garbage as possible and seeing what sticks. So you know, for me, I think we're just going to have more of these culture war trends, more of this fake outrage. You know, I certainly think that the Trump indictments are going to play a part in this. You know, this is all leading up to the 2024 election, which is going to be an absolute cavalcade of disinformation and conspiracy theories and fear and hate. It's a good time to kind of disengage from some of these spaces. It's a good time to really check who you're following, where you're getting your news from. But, you know, for me, it's just sort of keeping on top of what these people are talking about, why they're talking about it, and who is profiting off it. I love that idea about who is profiting off of it. And I think about the people who were the the end of the world preppers who were running uh, generator companies, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so that just seemed like, okay, I get, I get it. I get why you're making everyone terrified and telling them to build a bunker and then you can provide them with what they need to keep it running. And the disinformation is going to be rampant. I think also with AI, it's an interesting thing because you don't know how often you're talking to a person or not, or I mean, there's a lot that's disorienting right now. And so where can people find their news? I mean, what are some sources that you find more trustworthy than others? Yeah, you know, I still really gravitate to places like the New York Times, the Washington Post. They do not get it right all the time, but they don't knowingly push out insane conspiracy theories. You know, I still find that 
you know, source like the BBC is great. There's a number of analysts and pundits that I follow on social media who get it right much, much more often than they get it wrong. You know, there there is a reason why there is so much distrust in the media is because a lot of people are gravitating toward these very fringe sources who are telling you that everybody else is lying to you. So when your media sources tell you how everybody else is a liar, everybody else is controlled by George Soros, that starts to degrade the very basics of what you believe is reality, what you believe is fiction. And, you know, for me, I try really to not gaslight myself and and to not question things that I know are true. And I and a lot of that comes back to some of the accusations that get thrown at me. You know, I've been called so many horrible things that I know are not true. And and I and I always check myself. I go, who is saying this about me? Why are they saying it about me? Where where did they get it from? I try not to talk myself into the negativity that's said about me. I try not to talk myself into the general kind of doom and gloom that goes around a lot. You know, we're, this is a very serious time right now. We're facing a lot of challenges, um, politically, economically, climate. But I know that if that if I can keep hope to myself and keep my own, you know, news flow really strong, I can I can help other people do the same thing. I like that you that you check yourself and you check in and that you have these moments of reflection and then can say, oh no, actually that's okay. But I'm thinking what I'm doing, you know, because you can if you are someone who is open to insight about yourself. You know, once you hear something over and over, you can wonder about it. It's like very Orwellian to just keep repeating a lie until it sounds like the truth. But I think, you know, part of the problem I find that people have who see themselves as more liberal is that a lot of the people who are leading the different liberal movements who are not extreme in their thinking, but who seem rational and reasonable second guess and are maybe not as strong and maybe don't have talking points that are as powerful or even that are as short and rhyme, you know, like are just really catchy. And I feel like we need a little bit of that. Yeah. You know, I I was at a conference um, back in August and one of the people was talking about how, uh, how, how veterans are pulled into extremist groups you know, these like Patriot Front and these um, three percenters and people like that. And we, you know, we talked about the sort of the pull of right, of far right messaging and the very ironclad leadership that the far right has. And what this person said was something like, the left is always going to lose because the left never wants a leadership structure. And what that means is that a lot of well-meaning liberals can get really sucked in by, you know, grifters, by gurus, by people who are telling them, who they think the real enemy is and what to do about it. We all kind of need to take a step back from the extremism, from the believing things because we want them to be true. And I find that all the time. I find that with, even on social media, if I'll see some picture or some new headline and I go, that sounds so perfect and dovetails so completely with what I believe that I'm not sure it's real. And a lot of the time it's not. And just to, to, um, you know, talk about solutions, one of the things that we can do rather than try to tackle the entire disinformation problem is to just be better at it ourselves and just take a minute and check that news story, check that photo and go, that's so perfect that I don't know that it's actually true. And just take two minutes 
and check it out. And it may not be real. And you may have saved yourself from pushing somebody else a little bit further down the rabbit hole. And it, it really, it has to be ourselves. We cannot depend on the government. We cannot depend on the social media companies. It has to be each individual person fighting these tiny little battles every single day. And it's really tiring and time-consuming. And a lot of people just don't feel like they have the bandwidth for it, unfortunately. That is very true. I think it's also hard when you're, I think you're looking for leadership and you're not sure if you're getting the kind of leadership you feel like you need that is strong enough to battle the strength that is shown on the on the other side. And just to be clear to people listening, this isn't about Democrat versus Republican. I mean, this is really, this is about personality style. This is about human nature. This is about what people are looking for, what becomes intoxicating and what fills a need. Um, and I think People do want to feel like in this day and age, I think, especially that they have a leader who's very strong and is up to the challenge. Going back to something you said about um, veterans, I was talking to someone who who's a veteran and who got involved in the Klan after coming back because he said he just learned how to hate. And that when he was watching the insurrection, he could see how many people were in the military who were there. He could tell by the way they were holding their guns. And he said that our government has produced these kinds of personalities and this kind of desensitization to violence um, because you have to be desensitized if they need you to kill someone standing right in front of you. And then they were kind of all dressed up with nowhere to go. And this gave them somewhere to go. Yeah, and that's one of the things that that you're finding with veterans is that because we are not in an active war right now, a lot of these guys signed up to go fight and there's nobody to fight. And a lot of these guys did go to Iraq or Afghanistan, but they weren't on the front lines. They were like, you know, fixing engines. And you get all hyped up to go and fight somebody. And then you're you're back home and suddenly like who am I going to fight? And these, these, you know, these influencers and these gurus tell you, well, we're going to go fight the progressives who are uh, transforming our world, who, who won't let you tell the, the jokes that you love anymore, who are telling you that men can be women and women can be men and all of these other culture war issues. What it does is it gives people somebody to fight. It gives somebody, it gives you an enemy to confront. And this can very easily curdle into hardcore extremism that ends with riots, that ends with, you know, you're marching down the street holding a a shield and waving a flag, and it doesn't look that different from a fascist march in the 1930s. And it's everything that you signed up against. But it's just giving your anger and giving your sense of grievance somewhere to go and and other people to share it with. And that is, that is hugely powerful. Hugely powerful. And I, you know, I think about when I was asking you about what sort of drives you to do this, someone asked me, you know, what, even with the harassment or whatever else and um, working with the population, and you also don't like, you don't get rich necessarily working with a population that's been fleeced usually by their cult leader. You know, I realize there's a there there is a macro motivator and a micro motivator. Micro is actually not so micro, but it really is that I have this information about how to help people who have been in these situations and how to guide families and friends to help. 
and to know how to address the needs after their loved one has come out. That is important to me psychologically, socially. The micro shifts over to macro when I think about my fear of groupthink and what can happen because we saw what what can happen. And I it is incredibly gratifying, of course, with this with the podcast that it just started with me about five and a half years ago or six years now, writing down the ideas for it at a uh on a napkin at the House of Pies in Hollywood. And uh <laughs> And here, here it is. But what I really like is that there are a lot of listeners in places like Poland and Lithuania. And, you know, like they're listening to someone named Rachel Bernstein talking about group think. I'm thinking, wow, that is very trippy and wonderful to me. I, I guess I want people to also care about all of that. And coming, going into that whole realm, I think of then George Soros, that somehow he has been crucified when he's this... Jewish guy, I think, who like we'd probably get along. Like he, I think he cares about things that, you know, I care about. Can you spend a few moments just talking about him? At, because a lot of people keep hearing his name and not knowing why. Sure. And this is um, you know, what I get into at the end of Jewish Space Lasers is because the Rothschild family is really faded in its um prominence and its wealth, and it was never really that politically active. But of course, George Soros was hugely politically active. And he he really was not a figure of conspiracy theories, except um, really starting in about the mid-90s with the LaRouche movement, of, of all people. Uh, it was really his involvement in the 2004 election when he came out very strongly against the Iraq war. And this was still that time when it was like, if you didn't support every single thing George W. Bush was doing, you hate America and you are a traitor. And here is this, you know, billionaire Hungarian Jew with a thick accent who is talking about all these very lofty concepts of, you know, openness and progressivism. And he's giving a bunch of money to John Kerry. This guy just becomes public enemy number one. And within a couple of years, you've got like Glenn Beck doing three night specials on him. There's all kinds of books being written about him. He's like the puppet master. He's the controller. And I think Soros fills that need that the Rothschilds filled for about two centuries, which is if the Jews are controlling everything, who's controlling the Jews? And, you know, there's a reason why one of the biggest early uh, popular pamphlets attacking the Rothschilds was about uh, James de Rothschild, who's the son of the family founder, who is called the first king of the Jews. And there, there always needs to be somebody, not just in charge, but in charge of the people who are in charge. And Soros, with his, his money and his philanthropy and his visibility, fits that bill very easily. So he is now blamed for every single thing that anybody who is connected in any possible way to any business or philanthropy that he has been involved in, it falls on him. And so he becomes that perfect puppet master, that perfect controller. And the object of a million different conspiracy theories, which are all rooted in anti-Semitism, no matter what the people who are pushing them say, who say, well, we're not against the Jews, we're just against Soros, and you know, why don't you want to question Soros? You know, What's wrong with you for not pushing back? That all stems from the same anti-Semitic tropes that have driven Rothschild conspiracy theories and anti-Semitic pogroms for two millennia before that. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you for that. I mean, that really helps to explain it. 
And a lot of people just did not know and they were asking me and I know what I know, but you know a lot more about this. I will sometimes talk to people. People will ask me about Israel. You know, I... I, I I love it and and disagree with it and and you know and everywhere in between and so I, I just think that's sort of a reasonable way of looking at things more as objective as possible, but I also I find that sometimes I can tell if someone is anti-Israel and the reason is that they're anti-Semitic because they start talking about the Israelis and then quickly change the word to Jews. Uh, so suddenly we're talking about the Jews, even though many Israelis are not Jews, but that that was really what your point was. Right. I've never been to Israel. I've, I, I have no connection to it whatsoever. And it's one of the things with writing Jewish space lasers is sort of figuring out, okay, what am I, how much am I getting into this Zionism and all and the history of Israel? And, you know, I just kind of wrote about what the Rothschilds did. And that that is a discussion for somebody else to have in a different book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So speaking about books, Let's uh, take it away. Let's talk about your books. So tell us about the motivation, the the research and, you know, going on to a second book, et cetera. So take us through that. Sure. So, you know, I wrote this book about QAnon and it was the first book to really tackle where this came from, uh, you know, sort of what preceded it and taking some guesses at where it might be going and why people believe that this ridiculousness is real. And, you know, of course, the Rothschild name comes up in QAnon all the time, it comes up in all of these other conspiracy theories. So the thing I really wanted to do with with space lasers is figure out why. You know, who who are these people? What did they actually do versus what do conspiracy believers think they've done? And one of the first things that I did when I was trying to put the the pitch for the book together was get in touch with a bunch of family members and and say hey this is your opportunity to talk about this you know what is what have these theories meant for your life how have rothschild myths affected you and none of them wanted to talk about it um most of them didn't get back to me a few said basically it's a great idea no comment so what i had to do was kind of look at the materials that have been written about them and go really really deep into the very obscure books the uh you know newsletter archives from you know the the white citizens councils and the self published pamphlets from the 1930s you know and a lot of this stuff is 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 available and can be found and i read a lot of this stuff and i distilled down what are the through lines and what what are the accusations that are made and who is making these accusations now? And where did they get it from? And where did they get it from? And, you know, you can really trace a direct line from the conspiracy pushers of today, the people like Alex Jones, and the conspiracy pushers of the 1970s, and the conspiracy pushers of the pre-war era. And it goes it just goes back and back and back and back and back. And I really wanted to find out where did this myth originate from and why are we still talking about it? Right. Why are we still talking about it? That's very. That's always very interesting. I wonder what it was like for you just to be reading through these materials because I, it, it's hard to want to uncover so much um, that can feel just so hateful. So did it have an impact on you? You know, a lot of it uh, I was able to kind of shrug off because so many of these books are so badly written. Uh, you know, the, these classics of the conspiracy world are are like totally unreadable. They're just, it feels like some of this stuff was written in a fever dream. The, the, the one time I was like, that I actually did have to stop and like 
Take a Walk Around the Block, uh, was one of the Nazi propaganda films that I watched for the book. This this just horrifying uh, faux documentary called The Eternal Jew. Uh, do, I do not recommend it. Uh, zero stars. Um, you know, would not recommend. And I, I watched about half of it, and I and I there was a lot of talk about the Rothschilds in it. And I got to a point where I said, I can't watch any more of this. This is horrible. And I was able to find a presentation about the film that was made by a German professor because the film can't be shown in Germany, who really went through it and talked about the rest of it. Because I said, you know what, I've I've put myself through a lot for this book and there's just a limit. But I recognized that and I didn't feel like I had this masochistic need to read every newsletter, to watch every video, read every word of every book. It's just, it's too much. And there is a level to which you just say, okay, I'm, there is a place I'm going to stop. And I think finding that place and recognizing it is really important when you're doing this kind of work. Uh, Right. Okay. And so then I'm sure, you know, with writing books, you can be thinking, okay, I still have this material that I want to use for something in the future. I want to write more. So what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about kind of future things that you want to put together? Well, the, you know, the launching this book into the world is really my focus right now. And one of the things that I really want to do is find ways to get material to people who are not uh, terminally online, who are not on Twitter all the time, who are not listening to a dozen different podcasts every day. So what I really want to do is develop this as a documentary series. And I'm working on that right now. And, um, Hopefully by the time this comes out, there'll be some good news to announce and there's been a lot of interest. And I think there is a way to tell this story that is visual and that leans into how weird it is and how uh, outlandish a lot of these personalities and a lot of these accusations are, but that also understands the gravity of it. You know, you find that with the the book cover, you know, the book cover, I mean, even the title, Jewish Space Lasers, it sounds very glib. And the cover is, you know, menorahs shooting out lasers at an all-seeing eye. And you could come across as unserious, but it's also leaning into how weird all of this is. And also understanding that I think we have enough material that dwells on the the sorrow of the Jewish experience. And I think we can we can also dwell on the perseverance of the Jewish experience and the humor of the Jewish experience. So what I would want to do in the future with this is really combine all of those elements into something that is a visual companion to the book. So I'm I'm working on that right now. Wow. Sounds great, actually. I can't wait to see it. No, I I can't wait to uh to get it out there into the world. And and I I I think I think it would resonate with a lot of people. Oh, I think so. Okay. Anything else you want to let us know? Any other pearls uh, you want to drop our way before we finish up? Um, gosh, you know, I I think just everything we've talked about is is really personalizing this experience because this disinformation crisis seems so enormous, and it it is. But we can find a place for it in ourselves to make it a little bit better for you know even just the people in our immediate orbit. And that's, that's one of the things that I really, that I really focus on. And, um, I would definitely say, you know, get, uh, the books that I've, that I've written. You can still find me on Twitter. I'm at Rothschild MD. I'm still, still out there fighting the good fight and trying not to let the trolls take it over completely. 
and and yeah, I mean, I'm very approachable, and you know, my my direct messages are open. My email address is there on my Twitter page, and you know, if anybody has any questions, anybody's dealing with anything like this in their life, uh, I'm always happy to, to answer questions. Mm, okay, that's really wonderful, and I like that idea of doing something that you can do something. You don't have to just sort of sit back and wring your hands uh, and worry and feel overwhelmed. You know, there's a lot that feels overwhelming right now, but still finding your way, finding your place in the movement to try to make things make more sense. Okay, thank you for all of your research and all of your work and fighting the good fight. And I really, I can't wait to see what you put out there. So thank you again. Thank you. One more thing before you go. It is really important to have these kinds of discussions. I really want to thank Mike for his wisdom and for what this should not take, which is bravery, but it does, unfortunately, take that now because you put yourself at risk by sharing these messages at times. It should be that you can talk about what you have uncovered and what you know and what you agree with and what you don't without worry. But now is a time of worry. It's also a time of unprecedented tension for a lot of people in their lifetime, a lot of young people, but also an unprecedented means of dissemination of facts and non-facts. People can reach people en masse unlike any time before. It brings with it the whole question about information and how you know that information is accurate and how you might be able to discern if it's not. But even more than just finding out if it's true or not, there is an intoxication with information that for some people, as Mike talked about, They need to feel like they know more than anyone. People desire secrets, secret information. That's why gossip mags and gossip shows are so popular and will always be. People want to know a secret. They feel powerful. They feel like they have the inside track or that they're part of an inner circle that's been sort of chosen to have this information. But the interesting twist, of course, is that when you have this secret information, not only can you kind of hold it over other people and feel superior if that's what it does to you, but the focus then becomes on who is withholding. Why is this a secret? Why is this not common knowledge? Why can't everyone get their hands on this, whatever this is? And when anything is kept from you, it becomes forbidden fruit. It becomes so much more appealing when you're told, ah, this is not for everyone. And only certain people who have been able to access just the right means and just the right channels, and literally channels, like 4chan, can gain this information. We want what we can't have or what we assume is being kept from us. 
One of my kids did this social experiment that is actually on my refrigerator. And there is a yellow triangle, a red circle, and a blue square. And in my son's handwriting, it says, don't press the red circle. The red circle is the only thing that has multiple handprints in it and on it. It's the only shape that has been touched. And it is so interesting to watch that. It's not like we're trying to do an aha moment. It's more just to sort of understand the psychological dynamic of that. You know, welcome to the, to the house belonging to a therapist. But it's so interesting to learn people and to get this part of people. And I think people do feel so special when they have this information, but they also can become so angered because they think that this information has been kept from them until now as though it's something so life-shattering, as though it's the kind of the be-all and end-all, as though it's like the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so much of this information is not based on any reality. It's just kind of interesting and intriguing. And so much of it is made up. But still, there is this great mythic creature that it has become. Like you want a glimpse of it, like it's, you know, the Loch Ness Monster. And so if people could understand that that is something crafted to get people to believe that information is being kept from them, And it's something crafted to make the information more appealing, but also to cause people to spend hours and hours of their time in search of this. Yes, is information being kept from us? Of course it is. It doesn't plague me during the day. I don't need to uncover things. I need to just go about my day. And while I do have a distrust of certain people and sometimes of the government, I focus on other things. But for other people, they just can't. This becomes their cause celeb. This becomes their obsession. When you look at it, again, psychologically, you wonder why they're throwing themselves into this. And sometimes people are just looking to be busy. They need something to fill their time. They need something to occupy them. But for others, they're looking for a distraction, a distraction from their worries, a distraction from their life. Even still, there's this other category of people that need desperately to feel special. And I would feel sorry for them if it weren't for the fact that they turn on other people and their genuine distrust devolves into anti-Semitism and xenophobia or racism and all sort of the usual hatreds, the usual suspiciousness. And I think people don't realize how dangerous that is to the world. During this high holiday season on the Jewish calendar, I found myself at synagogue, where I will be again next week. And here, there's a food bank, people are bringing canned goods, and they're bringing toiletries for the homeless. There's a program for kids with special needs. There are children running around. There are people in wheelchairs. There are some beautiful things happening, this lovely connectedness 
and great causes being served. But the rabbi starts the service by letting us know that we need to notice where the exits are because there had been a bomb scare that morning, which turned out to be false, but it's happened over and over again. And so again, as we walk past the guards and go through metal detectors to get to this service and then hear about the bomb threat, you realize that a lot of this rhetoric is actually dangerous. And so I do hope that one day we will all be able to get along. But until then, unfortunately, a lot of people are less focused on getting along and more into the power that they feel and the connectedness they feel to each other by having a common enemy. And if they can't find an enemy, they designate one. They look for it, they label it as though minorities, as though others are really their enemy. It is the people feeding them this information, the people feeding off their nervousness who are the enemy. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.